0: So our scripture reading comes from Psalm 33 this morning, and we get to listen to it read by a ministry called Streetlights. And uh, Streetlights is a group of of guys out of Chicago who decided they wanted to put a lot of scripture to uh, different music, a lot of hip-hop beats, things like that. Um, One of the guys is actually at Edgewater Baptist Church in town. Um, A couple of them are in other parts of Chicago. But I hope that you enjoy hearing the scripture read in this way. And uh, without further ado, (laughs) streetlights.
1: Psalm chapter 33. Let the godly sing for joy to the Lord. It is fitting for the pure to praise him. Praise the Lord with melodies on the lyre. Make music for him on the 10-stringed harp. Sing a new song of praise to him. Play skillfully on the harp and sing with joy. For the word of the Lord holds true. And we can trust everything he does. He loves whatever is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, whose people he has chosen as his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne, he observes all who live on the earth. He made their hearts so he understands everything they do. The best equipped army cannot save a king, nor is great strength enough to save a warrior. Don't count on your war horse to give you victory. For all its strength, it cannot save you. But the Lord watches over those who fear him, those who rely on his unfailing love. He rescues them from death and keeps them alive in times of famine. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone.
0: God, for the people of God, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that even now your unfailing love surrounds us. And we've gathered this morning to hear from you. We want a word from you, Lord. And so even now, uh, we turn our intention even, even more towards you. We open as much as we can ourselves, our ears, to hear from even more of you. We soften as much as we can our hearts to receive even more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a, as a songwriter, and uh, I've served as a worship leader, the one who leads the music at churches for a long time in the past, I love Psalm 33. Uh, it unflinchingly commands us to sing. So it was kind of, of course I'm going to like it. I'm trying to get people to sing. Um, and, I mean, it's gold for the songwriter. Some people have called it the composer's psalm par excellence but I, I, I think back I, I feel like this happened I imagine myself as a teenager in my room I had recently started playing the guitar um, and recently become a Christian and so it's late into the night I'm sort of noodling on my guitar trying to figure out how you write a song and I'm sure my mom came knocking wondering what are you doing uh, did you finish your schoolwork You know, and I probably responded, Mom, you don't get it. This is more important. I am fulfilling the scriptures in this moment. I am singing a new song. Uh, I love Psalm 33. But there's always been a few verses to me that felt out of place. um, Or I just, I, I couldn't understand how they belonged. The psalm begins... Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. So far, so good, right? The psalm says to praise God by singing and creating something new. I'm following. I get it. Then skip a couple verses, but 6 to 9 says... By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Okay, this makes sense. The psalm says we should create, sing a new song. And then it says how God created. So that I'm following, right? It says create. says how God created. Okay. Then verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Okay. I'm still following. We should create Because God created the world, and he created and sustains us. He formed our hearts, so let our hearts form something new for him. Makes total sense. It's essentially saying, be creative because God is creative. Okay, I'm following. I get it. I like it. Then, verses 16 and 17 sneak in. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is vain hope for deliverance, despite all its great strength it cannot save. For me, the psalm seems to jump from this theme of creation and praise to the futility of armies and the vanity of horses. Uh, What's going on here? What's the connection How was this psalmist praying where all of a sudden they go from all this beautiful talk about singing and creativity and God's creative handiwork to dissing horses? What does the harp have to do with the warrior? What does the lyre, L-Y-R-E, the instrument lyre, have to do with the war horse? What does praise have to do with power? Mark Rothko says this. A picture lives by companionship, expanding and quickening in the eyes of the sensitive observer. It dies by the same token. It is therefore a risky and unfeeling act to send it out into the world. How often it must be permanently impaired by the eyes of the vulgar and the cruelty of the impotent who would extend the affliction universally. Mark Rothko is not a theologian, he was a painter, and so he's speaking about his paintings here. How how risky it is to paint something and put it in a gallery, because most people aren't going to get it. Mark Rothko was a, a, a Russian, a, a Latvian Jew whose parents emigrated to America in 1913. He was a Yale dropout, and he's famous for what critics have now called multi forms. And yeah, Elias will put some on the screen, these multi forms um, you may have seen. They're really beautiful, really interesting, really simple, but profound. His goal for his paintings, in his words, were this. Someone had said, oh, you're an abstract painter. And he said, no, no, no. Quote, I'm interested only in expressing basic human emotions. Tragedy, ecstasy, doom, and so on. And the fact that a lot of people break down and cry when confronted with my pictures shows that I communicate those basic human emotions. The people who weep before my pictures are having the same religious experience I had when I painted them. And if you, as you say, are moved only by their color relationships, then you miss the point. I'm sharing this to show that Mark Rothko had a very clear intention for his paintings. He wanted people to have a religious experience standing before them. He told people you should stand about 18 inches away from them. So that you're just engulfed in this big painting and you have this uh, religious experience. You know, but he would also get very upset when people interpreted them wrong. um, Which you could see from his first quote. Um, This one right here that's on the screen, this one's often interpreted as uh, very optimistic I mean, it's so warm, the colors, it's nice. It's almost like a, is that a beach or something? I don't know. It's so encouraging. But he said that this was actually about tragedy, about tragedy. Uh, A few years back, by the way, this piece sold for $87 million. The risk of being misunderstood Of being powerless was crippling to him. I want to tell another story about him. It's really interesting. So, in 1959, uh, Rothko gets commissioned to do this really big work, this set of murals for a new restaurant in New York City. It's going to be in, in that building there, the Seagram Building. The restaurant is called The Four Seasons. It's not related to the, the, the hotel. But it's um, going to be like the restaurant. Okay? The building uh, designed by Mies van der Rohe, famous architect. And the restaurant's going to be like the newest, most lavish place. The budget was insane for the kind of stuff they wanted to put in this restaurant. In fact, a few years after it's built... The term you may have heard, power lunch, gets coined over the lunches held in this restaurant. Very powerful people sitting, having very expensive meals. So Rothko, Mark Rothko gets commissioned to to make these murals. And the commission is for $35,000, which is a lot of money in 1959. And he wasn't a huge deal yet. So this would have been a really big deal, both for his notoriety and for uh, his budget, right? He completes the paintings, but then after talking with his assistant and seeing the menu for the restaurant, he backs out. And he tells uh, an editor with Harper's Magazine that the restaurant was going to be, quote, a place where the richest cuss word in New York will come to feed and show off, unquote, adding that he wanted to make them, when he was painting them and he was going to put them in them, this was his intention, he wanted to make the people eating there feel like, quote, where did it go, feel like, feel that they are trapped in a room where all the doors and windows are bricked up so that all they can do is butt their heads forever against the wall, (laughs) unquote, and that, quote, I hope to ruin the appetite of every, beep, 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 whoever eats in that room, okay, So he has a clear intent for these paintings. You can show a couple of paintings if you want to um, they're They're pretty dark. This next one probably will be hard to even see much of the colors on the projector. But it's dark. So imagine, you know, you're dropping... 400 bucks to have some crazy expensive meal and there's just darkness all around you. So even though he finishes the paintings and he had an, a clear intention, which was pretty subversive, he ends up backing out. Because even though he had an intention for the artwork, he knew he couldn't control how people perceived it. And it crippled him. So he handed back the $35,000 and he put all the paintings in, in a storage room where they just sat for 10 years. When he turned in the money, he said, anybody who will eat that kind of food for those kinds of prices will never look at a painting of mine. So he had a distinct intent, right, to make rich people feel uncomfortable. But he knew he couldn't control it. He couldn't control what his audience felt when they watched it. And this really crippled him. And his story, um, there's a lot of beauty in it, but it's ultimately a tragedy. Uh, In 1970, at the age of 66, he was found uh, dead in his apartment uh, by suicide. And on the very same day that they found him dead, his paintings, these ones, the Seagram murals, arrived at the Tate Gallery in London. There's an inherent risk in creating something new and offering it to the world. To give it away, for someone to actually see it on their own terms, you have to be able to let it go. You have to let go of the power to control the outcomes. It might be misinterpreted. Maybe lighter examples, uh, Music. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. You know what people thought that was about? They thought it was about Bob Dylan's search for psychedelic drugs. And the Tambourine Man was his drug dealer. Misinterpreted. He said it's actually about the search not for psychedelic drugs, but for inspiration. And the Tambourine Man was literally the guy who plays tambourine in his band, Bruce Langhorne played a, a large Turkish tambourine in his early recordings. Or the famous one, right? Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. LSD? Or is it actually just about John Lennon's son, Julius, painting a picture of his... Or Julian painting a picture of his friend, Lucy. Literally a picture of Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Or... Born in the USA, (laughs) the boss. Sounds super patriotic, right? Ronald Reagan uses it. Uh, Bob Dole uses it. It's about Vietnam vets coming back to an extremely broken and depressing America. It's misinterpreted. It's misused. There's a risk involved with offering any art or new thing into the world as a gift. As soon as it's given, you're powerless for how it's received. Making something new is risky. It's not just art, by the way, but offering anything new into the world that you care about is risky. If you like to cook and you have guests over, right, and you're going to cook something new for them, you want to impress them, you want them to enjoy it, but you know there's that trepidation. Will they like it? Did I overcook the chicken? Were the pomegranate seeds... (laughs) Uh, I went somewhere this week, someone in the church's house, and the chicken was overcooked. I didn't say that. They said that. Um, So that's where that, I guess, inspiration came from. You know... Is the chicken overcooked? Or, or you're getting creative. You put some pomegranate seeds on the salad, but then you have the thought, are they going to like the pomegranate seeds? Is that bougie that I put pomegranate seeds on it? You know, there's the risk, anything new. Or, 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 or what about raising a kid? You pour in all of your love, energy, effort into this human, and if, you know you've got to let them go, right? If you don't, it's not going to end up well, but you've you got to let them go, and that's terrifying You don't know who they're going to become. You don't know how people are going to treat them. Starting a business, a ministry, right? Anything new that you want to give to the world will come with the loss of power for how it's received. There's a risk involved with offering anything new into the world as a gift. Here's the thing. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a scary thing, yes, but risk is necessary for a life of faith. And in this way, the artist and the songwriter, they they show us a thing or two about life in the kingdom of God. Because to be a truly creative person, someone whose life is generative, someone whose life is, is giving to the world, someone who's... Life is a gift of abandon. That's going to require faith. It's going to require faith. And what the Psalms show us is that the risk of creativity, sing a new song, which by the way shows up in five other Psalms, a couple times in Isaiah, a couple times in Revelation. It's not a one-time thing, but the Psalms show us that the risk of creativity is the risk Of praise. There's a connection to this. And and this is why verses 16 and 17 start to make some sense. No king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Praise and power are like oil and water. They don't mix. They don't go together well. Mark Rothko had an internal battle about this, right? He wanted to offer his paintings, even even as a religious experience for people. But he also wanted to keep control over how they were received. And this tension eventually took his life. If Dylan or Lennon or Springsteen would have been too concerned about how their songs are received, we probably never would have heard those songs. Again, this isn't just about the artist or the songwriter. It's about all of us who are on the journey of faith. Praise and power don't mix. And this is a repeated theme of scripture. It's not just in this psalm. It's not, I don't think, something that I'm just making up. I want to tell you three stories where you can see this, three stories that contrast power with worship, that contrast control with faith. The stories are about Saul and David, it's about King Herod and the astrologers, and it's about Mary of Bethany and Judas. Let's go to this first story. It's in 1 Samuel, in chapter 16 you hear a little bit of context about what's going on. And then the story's in 1 Samuel 18, but sixteen twenty three. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And then you jump to 18. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people. And also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home. When David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel. They were singing and dancing to meet King Saul. With tambourines. With shouts of joy. And with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another. As they celebrated, they said, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Right? Saul's afraid that David's going to usurp him. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in one hand and he, he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David against the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. The women, the women who are dancing and singing and celebrating, they become a nuisance to Saul. Because their celebration, their praise, confronts his power. Saul is terrified of losing his power. So David then, rather than an ally to Saul... Or a music, musical friend who plays the lyre to calm his spirits. David is seen as a threat to Saul's control. And he has to be dealt with. Right. I love the imagery of this battle between them. David sitting there playing the harp. The lyre. Both hands are necessary. You have no... You're a pretty vulnerable place when you're playing an instrument. Uh, and then Saul... Who has the spear in his hand just throwing it at him? This is a battle of praise and power. And praise wins. One, David, the life giving gift of song, and Saul with the death dealing damage of control. This is a story in the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. And then we have a story in the beginning of the life of Jesus. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he went to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they, they, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So contrast the wise men, these astrologists who discover the Messiah by watching the stars with King Herod. The wise men have come to worship Jesus, they fall down, they give gifts, their lives are an outpouring, a giving, right? Herod responds with coercion, tries to trick them into telling him where he is, and ultimately with genocide of all male children under the age of two. Apparently, all this death to him is worth it to guarantee that this little baby that people keep saying is the real king is dead. This little baby is terrifying to Herod's power. His desperate clinging to power makes him a monster in stark contrast to the wise men who praise and give and fall down. But this contrast isn't just at the beginning of the kingdom of Israel and the beginning of the story of Jesus. It's also again at the end of Jesus' life. And here's in Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. A couple verses later, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mary of Bethany gives freely and extravagantly in praise. I mean, she is the image of holy abandon, of divine waste. In worship, she breaks a jar of perfume that was equivalent to a year's salary. Jesus tells his disciples that this was a thing of beauty. Beauty has to do with excess, with with what some of us would call wastefulness. This was Jesus' anointment for death, and this terrifies Judas. Of course it would. If you're following this person who you think is about to lead an insurrection, and they just said, actually, I'm going to die pretty soon, and you want power, this is terrifying. So Judas reaches for the only power he can find, right? If Jesus is really going to die, then Judas will be powerless, so he sells Jesus out. While Mary of Bethany gives... Judas takes, Mary gives abundantly, Judas gets 30 shekels for the life of his friend. Power we can see in these passages is opposed to worship, especially the kind of worship that is abandoned and gift. This is because to worship, to praise, to create with abandon is vulnerable and dangerous. People who see themselves as their own king, their own ruler, with no higher power ultimately in control, don't do well with vulnerability. I mean, if they open themselves up to weakness... Someone else can come in and take over their spot on the throne. It's scary. But there's a risk involved in creating and in giving gifts. A risk that asks us to hold any power we do have with open hands. Seeking an advancement in our own strength or seeking at all costs to maintain our security, our comfort, our way of life. ...is completely antithetical to worship. Power is the opposite of worship. Power is opposed to gift. In fact, when power is hung on to at all costs... right? ...when we see people who really don't want to let go of their power... ...and they're in control... ...war results. War results... And here's the thing, the best thing that even a just war, so let's say, you know what, this war has to happen, it's a just war, it's a good war. Um, Even if we say it's a just war, the best thing that a war can do is restrain evil. The best thing a war can do is restrain evil from happening. It cannot create, it cannot give, it cannot (laughs) worship. And beauty and creativity sometimes do, but rarely thrive in wartime. So, friends, when it comes to your faith, when it comes to my faith, uh, don't, don't be a war general. Be an artist. Okay? Cecilia Gonzalez Andrews, she says, quote, artists are people who engage the world creatively with abandon." And abundance. I'd like that to be said about my faith as well. This is the kind of praise and worship that Psalm 33 points us to. I love the end of this psalm as we come to a close. The end, verses 20 through 22. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And trust me, friends... If you live a vulnerable life of creativity, you're going to want a shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We can only be a people living with abandon when we become present to the truth that all of life rests Gently in the hand of an abundantly loving God. The majority of the verses in this psalm, they speak to the creative work of God. And how he holds things together, his sovereignty. And that gives us a freedom to create. That's good news. In faith, then we're free to risk because he's holding all things together. Listen to this, another quote, I love this. This is Calvin Sierveld. He says, Trusting the Lord to carry us through difficulties leads to our being surprised by receiving more than we need. So we want to dance at the surplus of God's grace. This is another reason creativity and worship, it's all tied together because when we can come to a posture of trust, We get more than we need, and so it causes us to dance or sing or shout or make something because there's excess. There's an abundance. We have more than we need, so why wouldn't we give? The language in the end of the psalm is that of hoping, trusting, believing that God is who he says he is and who he has revealed himself to be in creation. Verse 4 says that he's faithful in all he does. Verse 5 says the earth is full of his unfailing love. This is a basic reality on which we can rely on. Ellen Davis says, quote, In resting upon that reliability, in accepting the remarkable givenness of our place in this world, we find our happiness. And I'd add as well that we find the freedom to create without needing to control the outcomes. To worship God in abandon, to give oneself over to praise is foolish if God is not who he says he is. Right? It's very foolish. I mean, think about worshiping this morning. You do know you could be spent, if God's not real, you do know you could be spending your time wiser. Like in a lot of ways. And probably more enjoyable. Okay. You could invest your time in more fruitful stock. But our time in this sanctuary on Sunday mornings. You do realize it does absolutely nothing to advance your rank or your stature or your savings account. But if God is the creator of all that is, and the sustainer, then we can hope. And as Christians, if this God is the same God who has made flesh in Jesus Christ, it was the ultimate gift to his creation, if this God is the one who's reconciling us to himself in his death and resurrection, then let us live as gifts to this world. Inglorious self forgetting abandon. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, you are the architect of our salvation. The painter of the heavens, the sculptor of the mountains, and the designer of our souls and bodies. So may your creativity inspire us to live creative lives of abandon for the sake of the world. Lord, would you fill us now with your Holy Spirit and inspire our hearts to praise. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So each week, I'm providing some sort of prayer practice, a tangible way you can apply this if you feel so called by the Lord. This one is simply to make something new as an intentional act of praise, and then share it with somebody else. The sharing is the risky part, and it's the risk that actually stretches our faith, your something new might be a sort of a poem, a short thing. Maybe, maybe you want to do a haiku. Maybe that's what you can do, right? Uh, or it might be a creative spin on breakfast, right, that you're going to serve for friends or family or a photograph or a song or a painting or a dance or on and on and on. The possibilities are endless. If this makes you uncomfortable, this is especially for you. Uh, I'm excited because we're actually about to hear uh, a new song. Dan uh, wrote a, a song about Psalm 33 that we get to join him in worshiping with. So there's not really a more practical application or obvious application than that. We get to worship along with him. We also heard a song that I know Stu had written years ago. The Children's Benediction song. A new song. Um, and there's something really beautiful, beautiful about that. So I'll invite the band back up, and uh, let's continue in worship, in praise, in abandon. Amen.